Good morning. Just singing that song um, took me to a passage of Scripture. I just want to read it to you. You don't have to try to find it at the moment. If you want to look at it later, you can. It's uh, Psalm 139. So we begin this new year and not knowing what lies on the horizon, uh, what's going to happen next week, tomorrow, next month, what's going to happen by the end of this year, where we'll be or what will be going on in our life. Um, That song just reminds me of these promises. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. It's the presence of the God that we're in at this moment. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about this next year. He knows everything about last year that maybe we just want to get beyond. And we come into his presence and he's surrounding us. He goes before us, he stands behind us, he surrounds us, he hems us in, he encompasses us, he protects us and guides us and he's there. And, and God's brought us here into his, into his presence here at Harvest Hill this morning to be surrounded by His Spirit, engulfed by it, and changed and transformed. And man, we can gather in, in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, and we can, have, we can miss it. And I, I don't want God to, I don't want you to miss what God wants to do in your life this morning. Um, that's not even the message, so. <laughs> um, I just, man, I'm so excited what God wants to do here. Um, I know God has brought us together. I know he's got big plans, and um, I, I really think he's placed it on my heart because um, I don't fully understand all of it or fully comprehend it. We were just talking about that yesterday, um, but I know it's something big, and it's coming, and he's just trying to prepare our hearts, his people, for that, and he's got to do that work first before we can do the great work he has planned for us. So This morning, um, we're continuing in our series of Christ. Um, If you were here last week, you know that we kind of got off because of the winter uh, weather that came through. Um, But we are on Emmanuel this morning. What we're doing is we're, we're looking at names, attributes, titles of Jesus to come to an understanding of who he is, um, how people responded to that, and in turn, how we should respond to that today. So we began by just looking at this name Christ and what it means that to say Jesus is the Christ or Jesus Christ is a statement to say that we believe Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah as prophesied in the Scriptures thousands of years before His birth. It's not just a name we should just flippantly throw out because we happen to stub our toe or do something that we're not very proud of. It is a name of honor and glory. 
We spent our next week on holiness, and we talked about how Christ is holy, and we saw how people responded to the holiness of Christ and how we can do the same thing today, that we've become so accustomed to God is holy and holy, 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 that we forget to be in the presence of holiness. It's not something we deserve or something that you know we belong here. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ we're able to enter into the throne room of grace, into the presence of God, and hear God speaking to our hearts. Last week, we turned to righteousness. And we saw that righteousness is, is living by faith and trusting God, even though we don't fully understand how it's going to come about. And Jesus trusted God with every aspect of his, his life, including his death. And by our faith in Christ and his death and resurrection, we are now con- covered completely by the righteousness of Christ before a holy God. And it's a gift of grace. Um, this morning we turn our attention to Emmanuel, and um, some of us here may be tired of hearing about Christmas. And a lot of times we associate Emmanuel with the Christmas story, and, you, and it, it's, it's right. Many of us probably read the Christmas story while we gathered our families and our friends um, over uh, the Christmas season. And we may have turned to Matthew chapter 1, which is where we're going to begin this morning, as where this prophecy is introduced and pointing to Jesus But Emmanuel holds a much deeper uh, significance and deeper meaning than just the Christmas story. Now, how many of y'all have already put away your Christmas decorations for the year? How many of y'all, that may be what you do today? How many of y'all just going to burn them? All right, all right, whatever. All right, so when I was in high school, I worked in a grocery store. And in the grocery store on Thanksgiving week, what would start to play over the intercom, that wonderful music, was Christmas music. And so by the time the week before Christmas got there, I was done listening to Christmas music. I wanted nothing to do with it. I'd heard Jingle Bells 50 different ways, uh, from dogs to Frank Sinatra to Elvis Presley to elevator music, and I was done with Christmas stuff. And so as we turn to Emmanuel, some of you are thinking, ah, I thought we were done with Christmas. Let's do something else. But this, if we can grab this this morning and what it actually means and what Matthew was pointing to, because Matthew wasn't pointing to Christmas or the Christmas story. He was pointing something much deeper and bigger. First off, I want to draw your attention that Emmanuel, spelled with an I, some of y'all may look in your scriptures and you find in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1 uh, in verse 23, Emmanuel spelled with an E, and I want you to understand why that is. Uh, It's spelled with an I because in the Old Testament it's written in the Hebrew, and so the English equivalent is a short vowel I, and so we get Emmanuel. So we'll turn to Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll see that. Now, in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, the, short, or the English equivalent is a short vowel E, and so some translations of the Bible have sought to, uh, to make it equal to the original language, and so they spelled it with an E. It's the exact same name, it means the exact same thing, but that's the difference in your translations. It's a matter of the interpreter and how they put it in the Scriptures. Um, This name, though, that Matthew's used is pointing to something rather significant as he begins to point to the proclamation of Jesus' birth and who he is going to be. So let's pick up in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Matthew. We're going to spend a little time here, and then we're going to work our way to Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to see where this prophecy of Emmanuel came from. So now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, 
resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What we see here is the Christmas story, but if you look here in verses 22 and 23, what we're going to find is what you find in Scripture. If you set out to read Scripture and study Scripture on your own, as you go through the Gospels and the book of Acts, particularly in the New Testament, what you find is the writers of those letters were led by the Spirit of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. It was driven by the Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches us. But the writers of the Gospels and the book of Acts were given uh, a, a direction by the Spirit to put what is called a narrative insert. And this is what is taking place in verses 22 and 23. Matthew is telling us the story of Jesus and how Joseph is dealing with this situation. The girl that he was set to marry, the girl that he had been probably engaged to for over a year, that his parents most likely set up, is now pregnant and he's not the daddy. And so the obvious conclusion is that Mary has committed an act of adultery. And so he's trying to be a just or righteous man and divorce her quietly because the opposite would be to bring her before the town, the city, and have her stoned in the city courts. That's Joseph's decision to make. Do I divorce her quietly, give her a certificate of divorce, let her go about her life and I go about mine, or do I bring her to the city to be brought to public shame so that she would be stoned to death? Well, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and begins to give him instruction on why he should continue to take Mary as his wife, and that is because the Holy Spirit has come upon her, and that is why she is therefore pregnant. And then in verse 22 and 23, what Matthew does is Matthew gives an insert. See, Matthew's gospel is predominantly written to Jewish individuals. They weren't all Jewish, but they may be either Judeo-Christians or they're Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And so when he puts this insert in 22 and 23, he's allowing his readers of his letter, because in the New Testament, you're reading somebody's mail. That's what it is. He's allowing his readers to hear this and understand how Jesus is the Messiah and how he fulfilled the prophecy. And he begins pointing back to what their scriptures are in the Old Testament, in particular to the book of Isaiah. So with that, now let's turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Because Emmanuel, even though it is attached to Christmas quite frequently, and and rightfully so, it holds so much more meaning than just to say that God is with us. Yes, that is something we can get off off the surface of the name, but what Matthew is doing in drawing from the Old Testament Scriptures is he is pointing to this promise that was given in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, we find the first instance and the only instance in which this prophecy is given. Verse 14 of chapter 7, it says, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name 
Emmanuel. Now, the context of this prophecy helps us understand the name Emmanuel. If you take chapter 7 and scroll back up or turn to verse 1 of chapter 7, we get to dive into this world in which the prophecy of Emmanuel is given. In the days of Ahaz, verse 1, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now this is what is going on when God tells Isaiah to go to King Ahaz and say, tell him the virgin will conceive a child and his name will be Emmanuel. To help us understand this world and to get an understanding of Emmanuel, I've asked, Bree, can you throw that map up there? Uh, Can you drop these lights so we can see a little bit? (coughs) Excuse me. All right, so I hope you can see. If if you can't, you can hopefully make out Israel here and Judah here. And and this is the world in which we're stepping into in Isaiah chapter 7. King Ahaz is the king of Judah. Now, all of this is seen as the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. But what happened is in, after King Solomon dies, the nation of Israel splits into the northern and southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom is Judah, and that's where Jerusalem is. That is where the temple is. And then Israel, also titled as Ephraim, sometimes in Scripture, is the northern kingdom. And so they split over a lot of complex issues, but one of the main issues we're told in Scripture is because King Solomon turned away from the Lord. He began practicing idolatry. And so after that, uh, the kings that followed him began following his ways. They began practicing idolatry. They began having altars and sacrifices to false gods. Now, there were ups and downs within this split, they're told, we're told in Scripture there were some kings who pursued after God. There were times of awakenings and times of revival amongst God's people because the leaders were pursuing after God and that began to flow into the people. But overall, when you read through books like First uh, Second Kings and First Second Chronicles, you find that these kings of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, these kings were wicked and evil. And they did the ways of their fathers, which means they practiced idolatry. They did not serve the Lord their God as the one true God. And so what happens is the Lord begins sending prophets. Since Isaiah is a prophet, he's basically a microphone for God who's bringing uh, judgment but also a chance of repentance. Repentance means that you turn from the direction you are going and you turn back to God. That's what repentance means. And true repentance only comes when true forgiveness is, is sought after. You only receive repentance when you truly or ask for forgiveness, and you're turning away from a habit. And so God sends prophets to the kings in the north and the south to say, you need to repent, you need to stop going in this direction, or I'm going to bring my judgment upon you. You are my people, we've made a covenant with one another that you would be my people, I would be your God, you would serve me alone, and you're not doing it. And so I'm going to remove my blessing of protection on you. Well, King Ahaz is down here in Judah. And we're told in verse 1 there's two other kings. So we have three kings. That's kind of Christmassy, right? Ha, 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 ha. That's pastor humor. Okay, so you have three kings here. You have Ahaz in Judah. You have Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the, the king of Israel. So Syria, if you look up in the top right, Aram and Syria, uh, the king would be in Damascus. And then here in Israel, the king would be in Samaria. What happened is the king of 
Israel and the king of Syria made an alliance with one another. Okay, this is where it gets kind of tricky. They made an alliance, and they also have an alliance with Egypt, who didn't even make our map over here. And so as you see, Judah's stuck in the middle, right? They're in between these two kings and the king of Egypt, and they're stuck in the middle. And so Syria and Israel decide that they're going to make an alliance, and they're going to attack Judah to try to get them out of the way so they can become a stronger force, because what's emerging on the horizon, which again is not on our map, is the Assyrians. The Assyrians are Iran and Iraq, and they're coming, and they're starting to put pressure on Syria. And so Syria aligned with Israel, who aligned with Egypt. They need to get Judah out of the way so they can meet this huge force that is coming their way because they want to survive. This is the world in which King Ahaz is in as the king of Judah. He is stuck in the middle, right? On top of that, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, what we hear is the Philistines, who are over here in Philistia, they're raiding Judah. And so they're plundering their harvest, and they're taking all their cattle, and they're, they're taking it back to the land of the Philistines. Over here, Edom, who to the southeast, they're coming up and they're invading. And so they've got pressures from all around coming into Judah. And Ahaz, the king, who's to lead the people, is to be the calm one and say everything's going to be okay. But he is obviously under a lot of stress. And so the Lord comes to him, if you look there in chapter 7, and he tells him in verse 7 through 8, that you know what, King Ahaz, the things that these, these men are plotting against you, they're not going to come to fruition because I'm not going to let them. I am the God. I am the God of angel armies, as we just sang. I am going to protect you. I stand before you and behind you, and nothing can move against you unless I will it to happen. So you're going to be okay. And so he grants King Ahaz permission to make a request. Request of me anything to know that what I say is going to be true, to which Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, the prophecy of Emmanuel comes from the rebuke in which the Lord gives Ahaz. It is a rebuke because... The Ahaz did not trust God. He struggled with his faith. And then when God gave him permission to ask him of anything, he said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do it because he was seeking after his own welfare and who he was. You can lift the lights up again. Thank you. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary says, when King Ahaz refused to show his faith by asking God for a sign, Isaiah gave him a sign of the birth of Emmanuel. Such a sign would give hope to a king who trusted God, but would be a constant threat to one who followed his own strategy. The double meaning of Emmanuel's sign appears again in Isaiah 8, 8. The Assyrian army would flood the land until Judah was up to its neck in trouble and could only cry out, O Emmanuel, a cry confessing that God is with us in his destructive rage, but at the same time a prayer hoping for divine intervention. See, when the Lord came to Ahaz and said, Emmanuel, he was stating that I am with you. I am for you, not against you. But all Ahaz saw was everything around him. It was a world of chaos. It was a world world of war. It was a world of uncertainty and a world of fear. In the midst of that, in the midst of his struggles, God comes to give him hope. Ahaz, I'm with you. I've got you. See, this isn't about you, Ahaz. This is about me and my glory. And I'm not going to let anything come upon you 
You just have to trust me. This is what Emmanuel is. It is a prophecy given to Ahaz that God is with us. Now, Matthew, in writing that, would have gone with the understanding of how Jewish people understood the relationship and the presence of God with his people. It signified a communion, a relationship with God that no one else could have unless you were his people. It signified a time of blessing, that God would continue to give you your daily bread, but he would also continue to protect you and provide for you. It signified that God has adopted you as his own, and as his own, he was going to continue to remain in your presence. Ultimately, it spoke of salvation. So when God comes to Ahaz in the midst of his turmoil and says, I am with you, he's telling Ahaz, I'm your salvation. I'm going to protect you. Ahaz, I've I've got this. You see this map and you see all these things coming against you. And you have forgotten the one thing you need to know. I am with you. I'm here. As you turn back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was a Jewish individual, tax collector, outcast by the Jewish society, yet Jesus invites him. And it's odd that God uses Matthew, a once tax collector seen as a traitor to the Jewish people, to write the gospel that would be to the Jewish people. But Matthew would have understood this concept or this, this title of Emmanuel. He would have understood what it meant and he would have understood what it, where it came from in dealing with King Ahaz. You see, in Matthew's world, what had ultimately happened is the southern kingdom of Judah, they began to make an alliance with the Assyrians who were on the horizon, right? And so they make an alliance with the Assyrians and this massive battle happens where the Assyrians come in and they destroy the northern kingdom. They wipe it out and they leave the southern kingdom for a period of time. But then along comes the Persians. or the, I'm sorry, along comes the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and ultimately the Romans. And to the point where we come in the book of Matthew, what is going on is we now have a Jewish people who are under a Roman empire who are now practicing idolatry and they're once again under stress. It's again a world of chaos and again a world of trouble. The believers in the time that Matthew wrote his gospel were going under heavy persecution. They've already seen some of the fathers of the faith die because of their faith. And so they're dealing with what do we do now with all these things coming around in our life, all these things adding pressure to how we want to live our life and how we're called to live our life as people of God. What do we do? And what does Matthew do in response? He points to the prophecy in Isaiah 7 where Ahaz was going through the exact same things and he says the promise is for you as well that Jesus is Emmanuel and God is with you. See, in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of the times that we go through many times of doubts and and, and we're wondering what in the world is going on in this world, maybe you're struggling with relationships or with your family or struggling financially, and in those moments, it's hard to see anything but the chaos. And you become exactly like King Ahaz, that God screams from the heavens, I am here, but you refuse to listen. See, Emmanuel, yeah, it is nice to put in the Christmas story. What it ultimately means is hope. Hope has come. 
Hope is here. Hope, you're not in this alone. You don't have to do this alone. There's a God who loves you more than you'll ever know on this side of eternity. And he is for you, not against you. When Matthew says that Jesus is Emmanuel, he is saying that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the incarnate. In John chapter 1, verse 14, where we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it speaks that God became flesh. He was fully God and He was fully man. That's what Emmanuel means. See, in the Old Testament, people were commanded to seek after God under the promise that He could be found. But now we come to the New Testament and we see the truth of salvation. The truth of God is that it is in fact not us seeking after God, but God is seeking after us the entire time. And he makes a statement through Jesus being born that I am here for you. I have come to save you. You are lost. You are blind. You are overwhelmed. And I am right here. God played by our rules. I can't remember if I made this analogy before or not here because um, I've used it before in trying to understand this. It's, it's the best way I've been able to understand it. In God becoming flesh, he was 100% man and 100% God. Well, that's 200%. That, you, know, you can't do that. What it means is that he was fully man and fully God at the same time. Yet at the same time, we read in Scripture there were, there were instances where he did not show his superiority or his supreme being, his supreme power. He allowed people to mock him. He allowed people to beat him. He allowed people to put him on a cross. He allowed himself to die. He allowed himself to thirst and to hunger. He allowed himself to weep and to feel emotions. So how does that work? Well, if we were to take the best basketball player we've got in this room, I don't know who it is. If you've got pride, then you could raise your hand, but we won't look at you. We'll pray for you. Yeah. If we take the best basketball we've got in this room or the best basketball player we've got in this community and we face them up against Michael Jordan in his prime, who would win? Who, come on, who would win in his prime? Michael Jordan. Yeah, let's not get prideful about our kids in this community now, okay? All right. You place them up against Michael Jordan in his prime, Michael Jordan's going to win. Now, if you were to put Michael Jordan against, let's say, my daughter, who is six years old and is playing basketball for the first time ever, besides playing on a playground, if you put Michael Jordan versus little Abby, would Michael Jordan play like Michael Jordan in the NBA, or would he play down? What do you think? Probably play down, right? We do that as parents, don't we? <laughs> I don't take my sons, hey, Ethan, come here, let's arm wrestle. Boom! How do you like me now? <laughs> I don't do that, right? We, we, we play on because we want to give them confidence. And I can picture Michael Jordan playing to the confidence of a child. He wouldn't dunk on them and say, this is my house. You know, he wouldn't. <laughs> right? Not like Billy Madison, okay? Um, this is God in the flesh is that he had the ability to still be God 100% of the time, but at times he relinquished that. And so when Matthew says he is Emmanuel, God with us, he's saying God is fully here in the flesh, and he's here, if you caught that in Matthew, to save sinners. That's hope. 
Because the Holy God looks at us and sees that we can't save ourselves. He looks at us and, and sees that we are all a mess sometimes. And yet Emmanuel says is that God is faithful to his promise and that God's love endures forever and God will not give up on you. That's Emmanuel. That's hope. The ultimate question we have to answer this morning is, God in me? See, when I believe that Jesus is Emmanuel, the scripture also tells me that he's not Jesus, only Jesus incarnate, but he's also Jesus interceding for me. In the book of Romans in chapter 8, this kind of goes with the song that Jackson was, uh, and the worship team was singing, and I, I didn't tell them to sing that song, so way to be in tune with the Spirit, buddy. Um, but verse 31 of chapter 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, Paul understood God came. Emmanuel came. Hope has come. And if God would do that for me, what can stand against me? He goes on to say, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What an incredible promise. Our Savior, Emmanuel, sits at the right hand of God in this very moment, interceding for us right now. hope. I don't want to stand before God one day and try to rationalize my way into heaven. Jesus is already doing it right now, in this moment. And Paul goes on because of this promise. He says, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's exactly, exactly the sort of world which King Ahaz was facing. Yet Paul understood if God would do this for me, if he loves me so much that he would be with me and be with us, he would put his spirit inside of me, I would be the temple of the Holy Spirit, that all these things that can be chaotic in our world, that can bring trouble in our world, that can bring hopelessness to our lives, all these things, they don't matter because God is for us and nothing can separate us from the love God has for us. As written, for the sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, in all these hardships, in all these moments, in all these troubles, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Emmanuel. God's got my back and my front and my side because he's with me. God wants to be with you. Leonard Sweet writes in one of his books about a French pastor who just taken on a new church in a small French community. 
And so he decides one day he's going to go out and start visiting the people that go to the, the church that he's now the pastor of. And he goes to the first home in which uh, he finds that is a husband and wife, but the wife is out. And so he spends time with the husband very briefly. Well, the wife hears of the visit as she, as she gets home, and, and she begins to ask the husband, what did the pastor want? What did he say? The husband looked at his wife and said, well, he only asked one question. Does God live here? The wife looked at him confused and said, well, didn't you tell him that we are the largest givers to the church? The husband just shook his head and said, well, he didn't ask that. He just asked, does Christ live here? Wife began to get frustrated and said, well, didn't you tell him that we read our Bible every single day, we say our prayers, and we are committed to doing those things? We are very disciplined. Husband looked and said, he didn't ask that. He only asked, does Christ live here? Wife started getting even more frustrated. Didn't you tell him every single Sunday we sit in the very front row? Thank you, guys. Front row. All right. Very front row. And we listen and we watch and we're there on time and we leave when we're supposed to leave and we do everything we're supposed to do every single Sunday. Did you tell him that? Husband looked at his wife and said, Sweetie, he didn't ask about any of those things. All he wanted to know was, does Christ live here? And in 2017, as it's been for the last 2,000 years, that's all God wants to know in this moment. Does Christ live here? Is he in you? Is Emmanuel there? See, without... Without God in me, without the Spirit of God in me, in me, I'm not saved. I'm lost. And I, I do not get the promise of salvation in heaven, but I'm destined for hell if God is not in me. But Emmanuel says, God is with us. He is for us, not against us. And He loves you. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter what things you see. God sees everything about your life, and he screams out from the heavens, I am here, and I extend my invitation to you. Will you accept my gift? The Bible says for us to do that, we first have to admit that we're sinners, that we fall short, we, we, we mess up. If there was a, a, a bullseye, we miss it all the time. But because God loves us, he sent his son, Emmanuel, Jesus, to save us from our sins, from ourselves at times. So we don't have to prove ourselves to God. We just have to trust him and have faith in him. And what God does is he takes our shot, puts it right in the target. It's by our faith in Jesus Christ that he lived a perfect life that we could not. He died a death that we should have died. And he rose again that we might be forgiven for our sins. It's by our faith and trusting in God and those things, the Bible says we are saved. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to do that, this is what God is screaming out from the heavens for you to do. Accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you've already done that, but you know you've been so distracted and you've been living in hopelessness 
And this is the message God needed you to hear. Say, Emmanuel, I am with you. Never leave you or forsake you. You're mine. Forever. Maybe you just need to hear that to reassure as you begin a new year. But if you have to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to stand down here in a moment. Ask the worship team to come on up. We're going to sing the song of invitation. What I'm doing is God is inviting you, not me. God is inviting you to make a confession of faith, to, to not only stand up, but to step out of that aisle and come down and say, you know what? I need Jesus in my life. I need forgiveness for my sins. And I want to start right now. I want to pray with you. And I want to celebrate with you. Because the heavens are rough when one sinner comes to faith. Would you be willing to do that if that's where you are this morning? Maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father because you've lost sight. You've seen all the physical going on around your life and you've lost sight of the truth that God is with you in the midst of it. And you just need to repent and just thank God for what He's done. However God has laid it upon your heart, I'm going to invite you to respond however you need to. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the promise of your word. Lord, thank you, despite whatever we go through in this life, that you're always there with us. You promise you'll never leave or forsake us. You are our shepherd, our very good shepherd. You know us by name. So, Father, in this moment, help us to hear your voice as your sheep and respond the way we need to respond. Father, for those that are here this morning that have yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior, I ask that in this moment, in this time, you reveal that to them and you draw them to your presence. They, they can be overwhelmed by your grace and your love and your mercy, your forgiveness. Lord, thank you that you're with us. Forgive us if we failed you in any time in this place. Praise in your son's name. Let's stand as we speak.